If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Modern notions of sanctity are that you're particularly pious, you perform wonderful miracles, you help people, you do selfless acts. None of that was required for an Anglo-Saxon saint. That was Yanina Ramirez talking about Anglo-Saxon saints. If you're going to compensate the slave owners for the loss of their property, then you have to, just for a moment, accept that the slaves are property. And that means you have to accept that it is possible for human beings endowed with an immortal soul by their creator can be property. And that was David Olashuga describing the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of July 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Yanina Ramirez, a historian based at the University of Oxford and a regular fixture on BBC television. Yanina has just written a new book called The Private Lives of the Saints, which focuses on religious figures in the Anglo-Saxon era. We sent our reviews editor, Matt Elton, to speak to her, and he began by asking Yanina what made her want to tackle this subject in the first place. Well, I've been studying the Anglo-Saxon period for... ever. (laughs) Since I was an undergraduate student, I've been in love with old English literature and Anglo-Saxon material culture... And um, I think the more I, the more I worked on the period, I was going into such interdisciplinary realms. I was crossing over into archaeology and anthropology and, and um, all these different areas. But the thing that, that seemed to be a glue that bound the period together were the individuals at the heart of it. And you can get to those individuals through the artworks, through the literature, through the historical documents. Um, and they were becoming fleshed out in my mind. And then I was doing this series on monasteries for BBC Four, and it took me to all these amazing locations. It took me to Lindisfarne and Skellig Michael, which I write about in the book. And the more I was spending time in these places associated with the saints, the more I felt that there was a real story to be told by just focusing on them. And they're so, they seem to be so well known. You know, we pass street names and village halls dedicated to these people, but actually, it's rare for them to be studied as individuals. You get these wonderful monographs on kings, you know, Alfred the Great and Edgar, but you don't tend to get a single popular book on the saints. But arguably, they're almost more important in people's imaginative worlds than their rulers. Yeah, their rulers yeah. are always distant, so, you know, they're cut off. But the saints, they were accessible, they were prayed to, they were... You know, people told their stories around the campfires. You know, the heroes were replaced by the saints. So people knew the things that the saints got up to. So that, yeah, they became the absolute kind of, for me, the easiest in to the Anglo-Saxon period. Um, you say at the start of the book, I think, that you try to imagine what the equivalent of a tabloid newspaper would be yes. at the time. So what kind of roles would these saints have occupied in that context? Like? Excellent. Yeah, it, that was one of the inspirations for writing the book, was, was thinking about opening something like The Sun, and having a flick through and seeing these people who are so part of the zeitgeist, so part of the moment, um, arguably celebrities are more recognisable than politicians to people on the street. And I was thinking, yes, you know, if I opened an Anglo-Saxon tabloid newspaper, it would be people like St Cuthbert, it would be St Hilda, it would be the latest martyr or the strange hermit that's taken themselves off to, to the fens um, and have seen battling you know, demons in the middle of the night. They were the people that that the, the populace wanted to know about. Mm. And you have to remember the Anglo-Saxon period was a time of great religious and imaginative transition. 
So you've gone from this pagan world that's inhabited by local deities, um, local god of the, of the water or the river or the glen, and household deities. They have their own little gods that they pray to and think about inside their houses. The saints took that role. Mm. The saints became associated with wells, rivers, particular parts of the landscape. But they were also inside people's houses. People were, would pray to a little icon or a little statue. So they were the intermediaries between the earthly and the divine. But they were also part of their environment. People would wake up and, and think about them. Mm. And, so, um, and, and so in that respect, until royal portraiture becomes so ubiquitous after Henry VIII, the saints were in people's houses and in people's minds. Um, and I think that they would have been in the newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> they would have yeah. been in the front news, you know. Um, Alban's martyrdom, the, the, the way that he died, that was big, big story, big stuff. The idea that he parted the river, a bit like Moses. Um, the idea that the um, executioner's eyes popped out the second he struck the deadly blow. This is all exciting, yes. visceral stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, how, how did you get to become a saint? What do we mean when we talk about saints, I guess, in this context? Yeah, we have, we have an idea now that saints are, are, are um, they have to prove themselves. They have to go through this long period of canonisation, which um, is determined by a particular branch of the Vatican. It can take decades for a saint to be recognised. The last few years we've had so few saints, um, they have to have perform miracles, they have to be, uh, their bodies are uncorrupt after burial, all these, these things that seem to be criteria. But that simply wasn't the case in the Anglo-Saxon period. None of those criteria were in place. What made a saint was notoriety. What made a saint was celebrity. If you were well known, if your stories were well known, you could become a saint and you could be crafted into a saint after death. So say um, somewhere like Canterbury wants to, when, when you get the death of Thomas Becket, it's somewhat later, but what, it's a very good example of what a saint can do for a place because Canterbury Cathedral got completely re rebuilt. It became a tourist hub, the Disneyland of the medieval period where people were streaming to get there. Chaucer writes the Canterbury Tales about this constant stream of tourists going to be near this saint's relics in the hope of miracles, in the hope that the saint can intervene with them in heaven. Um, but on a, on a more local level, if a, a particular monastery had been subject to corruption, if a particular royal family wanted to prop up a new monastic estate, they could do that by, by putting a saint's name, attaching a saint's identity to that place. And then they could invest in things like beautiful manuscripts, wonderful reliquies, all the trappings of sanctity to, again, support that cult of the saint. Um, so it, it was very different to what we think of in our modern notions of saint, sainthood. Yeah. Modern notions of sanctity are that you're particularly pious, you perform wonderful miracles, you help people, you do selfless acts. None of that was required for an Anglo-Saxon saint. And in fact, some of the saints covered by the book are selfish, bloodthirsty, tyrannical. You know, they show all the shades of of human failings as well mm. as human achievements. So they're very human, they're not this kind of removed, kind of heavenly figure that we sometimes think of. Absolutely not, and one of the things I say right in the start of the book is I want to get over this idea of a one-dimensional mass of the blessed. Mm. When you go to places like Ravenna and you see these monastic friezes where you have just hundreds of homogenous looking female and male saints and they're interchangeable, there's nothing distinctive about any of them, they're just in this long procession. That's not what the Anglo-Saxon saints are about. They're so unique. Each one tells its own story. Each one um, is, is tangible. And we're fortunate, particularly with the Northumbrian saints, that we have someone like Bede, the Alistair Campbell of his time, giving us this, this very clear insight into these people's lives, their identities. And again, it's, it's a bit of a detective. You have to do a lot of detective work when you're working with um, the early medieval period because... There isn't a lot of evidence and you have to piece the evidence together selectively um, and with a good understanding of the broader historical picture. Mm. And sometimes I may have got it wrong. Sometimes my view of some of these people may have missed something, I may have got it wrong. But for me, I want to start a dialogue. I want other people to start looking at these people afresh. I want the saints to become um, re-evaluated, to be looked at again and afresh. You mentioned there that we should focus on the individuals rather than this mass. Um, what are some of the characters that the book focuses on? Yeah, so 
each one, there's, there's um, ten major saints, but within each chapter, other saintly individuals creep in. So I start very early. I start outside of the Anglo-Saxon period. I start in Roman Britain uh, with St. Alban because he is still such a popular saint and he's the first English saint that we know of. I mean, there was a recent poll done on a Radio 4 show where people said that it shouldn't be St. George that's the patron saint of England anymore. It should be Alban. He's still very popular. And the reason he's so important is because he's a martyr. He dies a traditional martyr's death. And I want that chapter to be exploring this idea of martyrdom, almost jihadist behaviour. What we're dealing with with Auburn is a fanatic, a religious fanatic, someone who is prepared to die for his newfound controversial beliefs. And he's taking on the system. He's taking on the, the dictatorship of the Roman Empire and standing up in the face of that and accepting death and notoriety as a result of his death. So I think he needs to be reevaluated in that light as, as a religious fanatic. Um, so he's very interesting, and he also tells the story of the evolution of Christianity in the British Isles, the, the germ of Christianity. Because Christianity actually comes over quite early. Um, Pre-Constantine, there is bubblings of Christianity in Britain. And we've got all this wonderful early evidence that, that Romano-British people are starting to explore alternatives in their belief systems. They want to explore ideas of salvation and the afterlife. Um, mm -hmm. And they're looking at their options, and Christianity is one of the options. Yeah. So Alban starts the story off, and then we move in over to Ireland, because with the collapse of the Roman Empire around 410, there's this power vacuum left in, in, in what had been governed by, Roman, by the Romans. And that is, is a great place of tension where there's movement of people. And Christianity, really, the focus shifts over towards Ireland. And what you get in Ireland is this wonderful mix of um, a country that's untouched by the Romans. So you don't have aqueducts. You don't, what did the Romans ever do for us? Well, they didn't do anything in Ireland. <laughs> so so we, don't have, we don't have roads. We don't have cities. We don't have... Um, wine and all those wonderful things that came the Romans. What instead we have is, is quite a raw Celtic um, society that is tribal and it's very much in tune with the natural landscape. Navigating through the Irish landscape is, is something that is can be treacherous. And so the type of religion and the type of tribal society that we have there is quite unique. Mm. And within that, the idea of Christianity going into that setup and trying to settle, it's interesting that what really takes off in Ireland is monasticism and quite an extreme aesthetic form of, of um, monasticism. So if you go to somewhere like Skellig Michael, this outcrop of rock in the middle of the ocean and these hermitage up, there's this, there's this tiny, not only is there a small cluster of monastic cells halfway up the, the um, peak, but right up on the top peak, there is a tiny little hermit cell. Wow. So it wasn't enough to be battered on all sides on this oceanic rock in a, in a tiny hermit's, in a monastic cell. Some people would take themselves even further. I mean, it's like Simon stylized this idea of the hermit on top of a pillar mm. for their whole life. They, they went to extreme lengths. Um, and the only thing I can compare it to is those sorts of um, extreme athletic feats that people put their bodies through now, explorers who want to go to the North Pole, um, extreme athletes who will run through treacherous terrains to push their bodies to their limits. Mm. So the early monks, the early hermits, they were those sorts of people. Slightly, maybe not all there, <laughs> maybe missing a screw or two. And you know, I try to very subtly say in the book that, that these people had, had their, their issues, I'm sure. Mm but they were punishing their bodies in order to enrich their souls. Right. And so monasticism starts to thrive in Ireland. And within Ireland, we also get these hybrid saints, these saints like Bridget, who embrace the old Celtic pagan Druidic tradition, but move it forward into the new Christian world. So Bridget actually has her origins in a Druid goddess, a fertility goddess, a goddess of water associated with wells and, and Saint Bridget is a way of stopping that cult becoming redundant and giving it a new lease of life in the service of the church. Mm. So rather than a, a complete break, there's this weird 
fluidity and things like the Bridget Cross. I'm wearing a Bridget Cross now. Um, that is going right back. It, it's made out of reeds that are tied together. And the shape of it is cross-like. But these were, put, were hung up outside houses to protect them from, from fire and from disease. So the roots of this symbol seem to be much earlier. Yeah. And it's that, that, that weird symbolic transition that you see. So the early part of the book focuses on early saints like that. Um, then we move through St. Patrick. Patrick is um, a slave and his movement through slavery across uh, England and into Ireland. Uh, we look at um, Cuthbert, Columba, Gregory the Great. There's a lot on the saints, Wilfred, Hilda um, and Cuthbert, all representing Northumbria during this time of transition. And their story is very interesting because we've got some wonderful artworks that, that come straight out of that environment, straight out of that time, that are incredibly ambiguous and, and transitional. So things like the Frank's Casket, where you've got pagan um, Celtic, uh, sorry, pagan Germanic gods, like Well and the Smith, right up against Christian images of the Magi. It's a world in change. It's a world going through an ideological and intellectual change, and also a political change. And then, as we move on, it, it goes into Alfred the Great, and then there's quite a big change in the nature of sanctity. Towards the 9th century, 10th century, Anglo-Saxon England is really changing. And it's changing under the threat of the Viking raids. We tend to think about the Vikings as these brutal uh, thugs that sort of wash up, grab everything and go away. But actually the Vikings had a profound effect on Anglo-Saxon culture in the same way that the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes coming in the 5th century had, which is this, this infiltration within to the native population, this, this idea of fluidly mixing in, marrying in, settling in, and changing from the inside the very complexion of Englishness. Um, and within that, we get this idea of the royal Anglo-Saxon saint, the kings of Anglo-Saxon England, seeing that a way of propping up their identity is to have saints on their side. So they start to make their relative saints. All the princesses start to become saints. The queens become saints. Uh, all these relatives of the royal family um, are now imbued with this divinity, which brings king and God closer together. But it also means that there is this idea of the king, the royal family, above the rest of the population. They are now the intercessors with God. Right. Yes. So things start to shift and change. Yeah. As well as the idea of um, things changing over the whole time, there's an idea of identities being fluid and two identities coming together in the kind of person of the saint, I suppose. Is that fair to say? Yeah, fluidity is the key. I think the idea that um, we can box a saint up with I mean, the way that you, you would look a saint up now, say that you, you went online and you tried to find out something about a saint, they'll give you their birth date, their death date, their feast date, um, and then maybe a couple of incidental stories about miracles that happen to them, places associated with them. I want to change that. I don't want them to be seen like that. I want them to be rounded and full. In fact, even those basic pieces of information are subject to so much speculation. The birth date and the death date of most of the early saints are barely known. You know, say Patrick, we could date into within 100 years. That's like saying, you know, that... that um, uh, Winston Churchill lived between 1890 and 1990. It's, it's, it's radically dif difficult, different timescales. Um, so I don't think it needs to come down to details like that. I think what the saints actually tell us about is a cultural climate and environment that surrounds them. They are the windows through which we can look at this wider historical context. And they are incredibly complicated human beings. They're all... I mean, someone like Columba, he... He spends the early part of his life as part of a, he's, he's a... He could have been king of his tribe in Ireland. He's part of that very um, top end of Irish tribal society. But he chooses to become a missionary. Um, he rubs everybody up the wrong way. There's a huge battle as a result of an illegal copy he makes of a manuscript. It's, it's crazy. It's a copy... It's a modern... In, in modern days, we have copyright infringement. This is the first ever example of copyright infringement. Wow. Um, and it took place in the 7th century. <laughs> and it was over two, two different monks, Columba being one of them, Finian being the other, arguing over a copy that was made of a book. And that leads to a battle 
in which hundreds of people are slain. Oh, my God. So he's in the centre of all this sort of action and adventure. And, of course, once the, the writers of Saints' Lives get their hands on this sort of material, they dress it up in traditional formulas, things that, that sound biblical or come out of other saints' lives, out of this very formulaic um, uh, genre of saints' writing. But the, the essence of the story is actually quite radical. It's quite explosive. And once you start to apply the artworks and the ideas to these stories, you get a much better sense of the historical significance of these people. Um, and in terms of that, so they have a fluidity in terms of their role within society. They're almost constantly stuck between extreme piety and spirituality and harsh reality, politics, yeah. uh, economics. They're, they're, all of the saints are stuck between those two worlds. But they're also very fluid in terms of their sense of, I suppose, racial identity. We talk about countries now. We talk about England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. But the idea of an actual country was slightly nonsensical in the early medieval period. There weren't maps. So you couldn't geographically show a space of land and say this is a country. Instead, people were bound by ideas of loyalty, kindred, uh, kinship. So you were loyal to a lord who had governments of a region. And that was how you identified yourself. So when we talk about the saints being English, Irish, Welsh, that's almost pointless too. They are moving around constantly. Someone like St. Patrick, he, he moves all over Ireland, back and forth. Other saints like Wilfred, he travels over to Rome, he goes all across, across um, Frankish Gaul, he's going across Italy, they are moving around. They're not these parochial little characters sat within one location their whole lives, Bede being the exception. <laughs> he, he liked his one. He, he stayed put. Stay he fine. had double glazing. He was fine. <laughs> <laughs> he had it made. He didn't need to go. He was in the Hilton of monasteries. <laughs> so he stayed put. But everyone else was moving around. They were, they, they were very uh, fluid in that sense of being mobile. And they were, they were coming from mixed cultural backgrounds. This is the time where Irish princesses marry Anglo-Saxon kings where you know, bloodlines are completely fluid. So yeah, the whole book, one of the underlying things in this book is, is this idea of variety, of, of um, also this idea of not being able to talk about nationalism, nationalistic um, agendas, that looking instead at the mixture that these people present, the, the very um, cosmopolitan place that yeah. Anglo-Saxon England could be at times. In terms of these individuals then, what, what do they desire? What preoccupies them? What do they want? I think, again, I make the point in the book that we tend to get rose-tinted spectacles when it comes to looking to the past. We like to think about fancy costumes and, and wooden huts and everything being frightfully alien and different. But going back into the past is not that different to going to another part of the world that you don't know about, that you're not fully in tune with. Um, in terms of the shared human concerns, people from the past are exactly the same as us. They have exactly the same human concerns. They want to look after their family. They want um, probably wealth. They want power. <laughs> they probably want security. And so a lot of those things remain exactly the same. And the desires that we see coming out in, in the saints are those, those major desires. They want, uh, particularly when we look at some of the power-hungry saints like Wilfred, um, they want authority. They want to be listened to. They want material wealth. They want nice places to exist. Um, then we see other interesting saints like people like Benedict Biscop and Bede whose pursuits are intellectual. They want to grow intellectually. They want access to the finest research available. So Benedict Biscop goes to Italy and he may have even managed to acquire the library of this famous, um, uh, this famous thinker of the early Christian period, Cassiodorus. And he comes back to just outside Newcastle with these cutting-edge set of documents. It would be the, the equivalent of, of getting a supercomputer in your new establishment. He comes back with these volumes that are literally the, 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 the best possible biblical manuscripts of their time. And then he builds this intellectual powerhouse around it. When we think of Wilmoth Jarrow, we think of Bede. Bede is the best-selling author of his time. And Wilmoth Jarrow was the publishing house behind him. They were being bombarded with requests for his work 
across Europe. They couldn't keep up. The scribes literally couldn't write fast enough. It was too cold one winter for the scribes to be able to keep writing, so they couldn't keep up with the demand for his work. So Wymouth Jarrow becomes um, this, this almost a Silicon Valley of its day. It's, it's such an advanced place um, in terms of technology. They create this single pendant of the, of the Bible, first one, the Codex Amiatinus, and just the technology to stitch that thing hasn't been done before. So they are cutting edge of their time. And so places like that, we see the saints with different desires. Their desires are to strive in a different direction. And then we see saints like Cuthbert, who seem to have the desire to inhabit those two worlds of the spiritual realm and the real world, make a difference here in the real world and to be a pious hermit, someone who cuts themselves off, who prays, who have a, has a special relationship with God. So we see them bridging those sorts of divides as well. Mm. Um, but I think what makes the saints so fascinating is that they are, in this, in this volume, no two saints are the same. Each one has different desires. Uh, and then they come through very strongly when you start to think about them as real three-dimensional human beings. Yeah. Are there any modern figures that you feel are equivalent to, to the saints that you describe in this book? Tricky. Equivalent to is difficult. I think there are people who would have made it as saints. Um, I do a section in the book about Princess Diana. I feel that had she been born a thousand years earlier in the Anglo-Saxon period, there is no doubt that she would have been made a saint and a cult would have grown up around her. She was the mother of kings. Um, she had, was a celebrity. She was notorious. And she did good things in her life. She achieved a lot. And as with all of the saints in this book, she, she was a complex mix of virtue and vice. Um, but she also had a strong location associated with her. When she died, we saw this mass outpouring of grief, people turning up to Kensington Palace and, and laying out these flowers. They were drawing towards a cult centre. Uh, they were being pulled together. And in the Anglo-Saxon period, what would have happened is a church would have gone up there, a reliquary would have been created, and that flow of tourists would have been perpetuated um, she would have been hijacked for the purposes of that, that locale. And yeah, she would have been made a saint, without a doubt. And she, again, I think embodies the complexity of saints. If we can think of the Anglo-Saxon saints as being as complex as someone like Diana, then we're starting to get closer to who these people really are. They're not these cut-out figures, <laughs> these boards, these icons that just pop up and seem to have no depth to them. They are full of depth. <laughs> That was Yanina Ramirez. The Private Lives of the Saints, Power, Passion and Politics in Anglo-Saxon England will be published in August in the UK by WH Allen. And in the US, it's due to be published in September. Yanina is also going to be one of the speakers at our History Weekend Festivals in York and Malmesbury, which take place from the 25th to 27th of September and the 15th to 18th of October, respectively. You can see the full lineups and purchase tickets from historyweekend.com. And a few talks have already sold out, so do get your ticket soon to avoid disappointment. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our second interview this week is with David Olashoka. David is a historian and broadcaster whose latest TV series, Britain's Forgotten Slave Owners, began yesterday, the 15th of July, on BBC Two. It's a subject that David also explored in an article for the May edition of BBC History magazine. I visited David in his Bristol home a few weeks ago to find out more, and I began by asking him how slavery finally came to be abolished in the British Empire. There's a confusion often about the story of slavery because there's two aspects to it. There's the slave trade and then the slavery itself. And very often it's the slave trade that we remember, that we talk about. The slave trade came to an end in 1807 after a 20, 30-year campaign by the abolitionists. And they 
were able to point to the undeniable cruelty, the savagery of the slave trade, the number of men, women and children who died in the Middle Passage, the unchristian, uncivilised nature of ripping people from their families, from their countries, from their homes, transporting them, selling them as, hum- as, as, as property when they were human beings. So the selling of the abolition of the slave trade was a relatively easy sell when compared to slavery because it was slavery that made people into property. What happens with the story of the abolition of slavery, which is a campaign that begins almost immediately after the slave trade is ended, is it runs headlong into another British obsession, the rights to property. So you have these two British obsessions, the right to property, that property is sacred, that the law is all about property. And then you also have this burgeoning idea that Britain is a country that values freedom more than any other. So British freedom and British respect for property clash when it comes to slavery in a way that they hadn't for the slave trade. And are we mainly talking here about the Caribbean, the British colonies in the Caribbean? It wasn't obviously taking place in Britain. Was was there slavery anywhere else in the empire at this point? Well, Britain's lost the Americas. Of course, we often forget that the slaves in British North America before the United States were British slaves. The money the profits don't just end up in the in the 13 colonies in Virginia and Maryland and elsewhere. Some of that money comes back to Britain, that the products being produced by the slaves end up on the streets of London. So we often absolve ourselves of responsibility for American slavery uh, when it's British North America. So of course there are slaves in the Caribbean, but there's also slaves in North America. And there's smaller numbers of slaves around the empire, particularly in the Cape, the Cape of Good Hope. So obviously there was clearly a moral objection to slavery. Were there any other factors in it? Were there any economic factors in the argument, any political factors, or was it really a moral crusade? If you think about the period in which the battle to end slavery takes place, which is predominantly the 1820s and the 1830s, Britain is going through an enormous cultural and social change. Some of that's motivated by the rise of evangelical religion. But there's more to it. It's the Industrial Revolution. People are changing where they live, how they live, the cities are booming, new industries are being born, the printing presses are powering away, producing new pamphlets, new books, new ideas. Intellectually as well as economically, Britain is a very interesting place. And what's beginning to happen is the harshness of the Georgian world, the violence that was part of life, the mistreatment of animals, of women, of children, the idea that masculinity is about dominating other people. Those ideas that really had been the dominant ideas in the the 18th century, in the Georgian era, in the late Georgian era, in the 1820s and 1830s, they're beginning to come up against a new idea that to be a man is to be a gentleman, gentleman, to literally be to be gentle, that you're ability to emote, to empathise with other people, to have sympathy, to be rational and reasoning, to not be quick to temper. That other idea, that other model of masculinity, that other model of what it is to be not just a man, but a gentleman and a British gentleman, is on the rise. And slavery that had been acceptable to most people in the middle of the 18th century, begins to clash with this new idea of what it means to be a British man, and it's less acceptable. So we have events that take place in the middle of the 18th century, slave rebellions followed by brutal repression, about which there's very little sympathy, concern, outrage in Britain. And then we have events in the 1820s and 1830s, almost identical in many, in many ways, in which there is, among certain sectors of the British population, huge discomfort, outrage, disgust, and conflict. Britain is changing, and slavery fits in less well with this new Britain. And you mentioned uh, slave rebellions. How much were the slaves themselves responsible for their liberation? Because so often you hear the story of a few British men got together and decided to end slavery, but the slaves themselves clearly had some agency in this. One of the great complaints that historians of Black Britain and of the Empire have had is that the story of abolition has been told primarily through William Wilberforce and his followers, the Clapham sect, sometimes called the Clapham Saints. Now, their crusade was moral. Their crusade was hugely effective and innovative, especially over the slave trade. It created lots of the devices and tropes and methods that were used by later crusades, um, such as the temperance movement. 
And it's very easy to dismiss their importance. And I don't want to do that. But the slaves had agency. Enslaved people always were involved in resistance. Sometimes that resistance was passive. It was not doing things rather than doing things. Often, repeatedly, throughout the history of slavery in the British Empire and elsewhere, it was direct, it was violent, because there was no other means of communication other than violence. And in the period between the end of the slave trade and the end of slavery, there is a series of slave rebellions, one in Guyana, and the most important at the very end of slavery in Jamaica, which was one of the most sophisticated acts of well, it was an attempted act of non-violence. It was one of the most sophisticated events, I think, in the British Empire, events of resistance. It was an attempt at a strike, which was met by violence and then itself became violent. It is naive to think that people sat around waiting for abolition to come. They knew it was coming. They had contact through networks of communication, through literate slaves who could read the newspapers. They knew things were happening and they knew there was a difference of opinion between the slave owners in the plantation houses and the politicians in Britain. And they sought to have a voice in that debate through direct, violent, physical action. Something that you mentioned in the article you wrote for us is that as well as the, the anti-slave trade campaigners, who people at Wilberforce who are well known, there was also quite a powerful lobby in support of slavery, but they never really get spoken about. Could you tell us a bit more about who they were? Well, I think they're, they're another voice that's been marginalised along with the slaves and their resistance. The, the abolitionist movement had opposition. It, had, it was part of a dialogue and there were two parts to that conversation. And the other part came from the pro-slavery lobby, who'd largely been forgotten. But they were another smaller but very sophisticated campaign who tried to point out to the British public, to the politicians... Uh, and to the people who had influence in the country, that slavery, in their view, was essential to the British economy. They were led by George Hibbert, who was one of the leading slave owners, and was an extremely articulate, capable, well-organised man who took the money and the wealth of the slave owners and transmuted it into propaganda. And their campaign was one of the forgotten voices of, of the story of slavery. And they're really important, and a lot of new work's being done about them. What set them apart from the, the abolitionists? Were they similar kinds of people, different ideology, or were they, say, different class people, different religion? What, what was it that divided them? Well, that's the odd thing. They are, in so many ways, very similar people to the abolitionists. And sometimes there's crossover, there's, there's intermarriages within families, uh, between families, I should say, of abolitionists and, and, and pro-slavers. There is agreement on lots of other issues. So Wilberforce and Hibbert disagree passionately about the morality of slavery, but on many other issues, they agree. One of the great oddities of British slavery is a great number of the slave owners are philanthropists. They're people who open schools and begin charities, doing exactly the sort of thing that do-gooder evangelicals like Wilberforce really support. And so they have so much in common, they have so much in agreement. But on this issue of slavery, on the value, the rights, the status of black people, they are completely at odds. And so how does the idea of compensation first come into this story? That Again, the big sort of topic of your article is about how slave owners were compensated. Who decided to do this and how did that process come about? In the end, compensation becomes the only way Britain has to get out of slavery. After the slave rebellions in the 1830s, after the success of the abolitionist campaign, Britain needs a way out. But this is where the belief in freedom, the belief that slavery has run its course, that it's no longer something Britain can continue with, clashes with this idea of property. If the slaves are property, then for the government to take the slaves off the slave owners is abhorrent. The only way they can do that is by compensating the slave owners. So the idea is, is it's mentioned a few times uh, in the 1820s. It comes up, it's normally battered away, it's not really considered to be a viable option until the 1820s and 1830s. And then it increasingly becomes obvious, not just to the slave owners, but to the abolitionists, that compensation might be the key of unpicking uh, this bind Britain's got itself into, because it, it solves this problem of the rights of property. And so did the abolitionists just see this as a necessary evil to achieve their goal, that it was something, something that they sacrificed they had to make? 
what's, I think, incredible about what, what has to happen in the 1830s is that the abolitionists at the very end of slavery have to accept something that they've spent half a century denying. If you're going to compensate the slave owners for the loss of their property, then you have to, just for a moment, accept that the slaves are property. And that means you have to accept that it is possible for human beings endowed with an immortal soul by their creator can be property. That's exactly what they spent half a century saying is inconceivable, is utterly impossible. So out of pragmatism, out of a desperate desire to bring this system to an end, the abolitionists have to grasp that nettle and they have to, even if it is just for a moment, accept the thing that they spent half a century denying. And I, I'm guessing that the slaves themselves weren't compensated no. for the years in which they were mistreated. There's no compensation for the slaves, but there's even it's an even worse deal for the slaves because the, the compensation isn't just financial. The compensation is £20 million. That's about 16, between 16 and £17 billion in today's money, depending on how you, how you calculate it. But that's only part of what the slave owners receive in compensation. The other compensation is further free labour. The slaves are forced, under the Abolition Act, to work for a further six years for no pay for their masters, to continue, as it were, in bondage, paying off their value to their slave owners. So compensation has these two elements. So it's even worse than the slaves don't get compensation. They end up paying part of the cost of their liberation. And I suppose the British government would have had to pay the rest of the money. That must have been quite a hard thing for... I mean, to think about now in the political debates about trying to find all these billions of pounds, that must be quite a difficult thing for the British government to find the resources to do this, to pay private people. It was a huge amount of money to find. And Britain had just fought the Napoleonic Wars a couple of decades earlier. Britain was in a worse economic position than we are today. So to take on this enormous national debt, this huge burden, and add it to the national debt that was already an enormous figure, was an incredibly difficult thing to do. And it shows how desperate the country was to get out of slavery. In the end, the people who end up paying are the poor, because Britain is in the 1830s, a country that most of its tax comes from aggressive taxation, taxation on the basics of life, things that everybody needs. And the less money you have means the more money, more of your income, the higher proportion of your income is taken up paying the tax on those commodities. So in the end, it's the poor of Britain who pay the most, proportionally the highest cost for the emancipation of the slaves. And how much money are we, are we talking about? I mean, how much would a slave owner receive for, say, one slave? The smallest figure, I think, is about £18 for a single slave. It goes up to tens of thousands of pounds, the equivalent of £50, £60 million for the big slave owners, families like the Gladstons, who were uh, the family that gave us um, William Ewart Gladstone, the Victorian Prime Minister. So you have this enormous range from from what we now call the super-rich, people who who own numerous plantations and literally thousands of slaves to widowers who own two or three slaves or uh, women who've inherited uh, a few slaves from their father or from their brother to people who've got somehow entrapped, entangled in the slave system and own a few slaves. Some of the slave owners, the records show, were mixed race. They were the mixed race sons, usually, of uh, plantation owners who'd had affairs with slaves and as part of their um, setting them up financially in life, they'd given them some slaves. There's clergymen, there's even abolitionists who own slaves, who were given compensation. That's incredible, actually. People campaigning against slavery themselves own slaves. And they have to admit it. And that's what's interesting about the process, is you could probably get away with sounding off about your moral opposition to slavery in the 1820s and 1830s, the compensation system demanded that you register and make a claim on a form for the number of slaves that you own. So you had to come out of the shadows and admit it. So these embarrassing financial secrets, these people, even if very often it's from inheritance rather than direct purchase or involvement in the Caribbean, everyone has to come clean and all the records are there, 46,000 names in huge ledgers at the National Archives at Kew. And there's, I might say, there's a project that's been studying these. The Legacies of British Slavery uh, project at University College London, headed by Professor Catherine Hall and Professor Nick Traper, 
have been looking into these records, the records of the National Archives, for several years now, and they've not just been uh, registering all of these all of these these claims. They've been number crunching them. They've been seeing where people lived, what they did with the money, how much money they got, how they had become involved in slavery. And it's not just the lists of names and the numbers of slaves owned. There's also dialogue. There's correspondence between slave owners and the Slave Compensation Commission. So we often can find out about people's motivations. We can discover how they became entangled in the slave system, what they felt of the process they were involved in. And did any of them comment on the morality of the whole situation? Because it, it was no longer necessarily acceptable thing to be seen as a slave owner. Did any of these people comment on that when they were sending their forms in? The process of claiming was very bureaucratic and it was just writing writing forms. The letters that surprise me the most are the ones where people are trying to negotiate with a system, a bureaucratic system that's not really up for a negotiation, it's not really open to having a conversation and coming to a to an amicable solution. It's about giving you the money that the system says you're owed. But those letters often are pleas to this system by people who I think have lost some degree of moral compass, who see themselves as the victim of a system that's going to take away their income streams. And the morality of the system itself is often, perhaps only only momentarily, but lost to them. And they write about their hardship and their loss of property and them being left destitute when the property they're losing is other human beings. And you do come across letters where people, I think, have lost touch with reality. They have lost the sense of where they really stand in this global evil. And do we know what happened to all this money? This is a potentially a huge cash injection all of a sudden into the British economy. Do we know, did that help fuel, say, industrialisation or things like that? Well, this is at the heart of the work, the ongoing work that the University College London team, the Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project, are looking into next, is to find out what happened to the money. And already there's some very interesting work uh, coming out of their research. We know that many companies that still exist, their precursor companies, were uh, injected with money that came from slave compensation. The timing's interesting. It's the 1830s. The money's available from 1834 onwards, just as the railway boom's taking off. So a lot of the money ends up in investments in railways. People are taking money from the Caribbean, investing it in the new industries in Britain. Some are investing it in new parts of the empire, in India, in Australia. So this money is surging around the British economy and also the global imperial economy at a really, really important time. And it is an enormous act of quantitative easing. It is £20 million, £17 billion in today's money, between 16 and 17 injected into the British economy to a relatively small number of people, 46,000, at this really important time. So the full implication of what it meant for the British economy, what it meant for towns, villages, companies, charities, is beginning to emerge, but there's years of work to be done. Now, I mean, this, as you mentioned, some of these companies may still exist. Certainly some of the families that we were compensated will have descendants who still exist and may still be benefiting from that wealth. Have there been any attempts by former slave, the families of former slaves to try and get hold of some of this money? Because I think everyone would now accept slavery was morally abhorrent and this money was, was ill-gotten. Has anything happened like that? I think compensation has to be viewed as the final payment in a system that exploited African people for centuries. And the reparation movement, which ebbs and flows finds its strength and then fades away, is about the whole picture. It's about compensating or finding a way of compensating the descendants of people who were the victims of slavery for the whole process, for all of the billions of hours of unpaid work, for all of the loss, the dislocation. And compensation really is just the final cherry on a rather awful cake. That large amount of money has to be seen within the context of the vast amount of money that was ripped from the hands of the slaves by this system over generation and generation. But I suppose what it is, it's quite a concrete amount of money that you've got here. Here's some clear money that was that was paid that can be kind of quantified, so to speak. And there's other things, it's harder to gauge how much money we're I think, talking about. I think that makes it very, very interesting, the fact that the records are so good and they're so clear. 
One thing about compensation is it, it is the only time, that moment when the, when the slave owners register uh, to claim their, their compensation, it's the only time in the whole history of British slavery that we actually know who all the slave owners are, that all of their names are there. So it's not a full picture because some people had come into slavery generations earlier and then moved out of it. Some people um, had been there at the beginning but weren't there at the end. But we do have for... This one moment, the moment of its demise, we have a full picture of British slave ownership and we know how many slaves people owned, we know their names and we know how much they got paid. So in in this whole bigger picture of the forensic historical accountancy of slavery, the compensation records are particularly powerful records. And were there any of the slave owners who actually tried to fight the system, So I don't want the money, I want to keep hold of my slaves? Did that, did that happen at all? It wasn't feasible. There was no choice. They no. had to. No. It was a system, slavery was no longer legal in those parts of the British Empire affected by the Act, and that was the end of the game. What's interesting is the impetus to do that would have been only in the parts of the empire where slavery was extremely profitable. By that point, Jamaica, which had been the great boom place of slavery in the, in the latter quarter of the 18th century, was in decline, the soil was exhausted. But places like Guyana, slavery was still bringing in huge profits. The compensation system was very clever. It compensated slaves based on the value of the slave in the colony where they were. So the impetus, people were getting something like a market value for the enslaved people that they owned. And I think that did undermine the impetus to try to find a way of clinging onto the system. But a slave plantation is not an easy thing to hide. So, <laughs> it's, uh, so the, the game was up. I think everybody knew the game was up and the money allowed the system to end in a way that wasn't pretty, but at least it brought it to an end. And you've obviously spent some time looking at these records that the UCL project is working on. Was there anything in it that particularly surprised you? I've looked at registers of slaves and slave owners in the past and the thing which strikes me every time it's always the same thing. It's looking at the lists of names of slaves, looking at their ages, looking at where they came from, whether they were born in the Caribbean, whether they were Africans, and trying to imagine the lives of human beings whose whole existence was just consumed by this, this thing called slavery. And those records are... I always appeal to people to go and look at slave registers because it, it hammers home when you see six-month-old babies... 70-year-old women listed as property and in inventory on a plantation, knowing that they have spent their entire life as the property of another person. It's just numbers and names on a piece of paper, but they are incredibly powerful documents. And every time I look at them, whether it's here or in the Caribbean, they, they, they hit you. And what, what kind of response did the, the former slaves, how did they respond to their liberation? Was it kind of a moment of euphoria or were they still quite wary of how they might be treated afterwards? Well, when emancipation finally came, which was in 1838, uh, there was an incredible moment of euphoria. I think the greatest symbolic moment was that in Jamaica and elsewhere, there was a ceremonial symbolic burying of chains. Manacles were put into coffins and put into, into graves and buried. This idea of, of burying the chains, of... of ending this system, symbolically killing slavery, was caught the mood that this was a new beginning, that this terrible system was dead and that the future was going to be better. And there's no doubt that the future was better, better than slavery, but sadly the future wasn't, I think, anything as optimistic or as rosy as those people in 1838, newly freed, were hoping for. And, and what kind of relationship did they have with the former slave owners who still remained within the colonies, that must have been quite a difficult thing to negotiate. Well, if you, th if you imagine yourself a slave on a plantation in Jamaica and you wake up in August 1838 and you're emancipated and you're a free person, you own no land, you've had almost no education, there's a very high chance of that, some slaves were educated, most weren't, and you're a landless labourer at best. So you have a system where people have very little opportunity to move to something better. Land isn't made available. There is no money to help the slaves transition into a new life. There isn't uh, any compensation for them 
in any form. So the opportunities, the potential for betterment is really limited. Better that money had been given rather to the slave owners, but to slaves themselves to help them start their new lives. I think if there had been a share of that money gone to the slaves, I think the British Caribbean would be a very different place and maybe the British economy would be benefiting from trade with a part of the world that it had a happier relationship with. But what follows is years and years in which people are landless labourers, where racial systems are kept in place, where there's continuing riots and a mini-revolution in the 1860s. And that's what fuels the resentment of today. And But I think that resentment is fueled by another thing, which is that this history has been denied for a long time. The story of slavery is has been disguised, it's been hidden away behind the story of abolition. That's what people, for the most part, have been taught at school for many years now, that it's been about this Wilberforce story, that abolition, this love of freedom, that these elements of the British story are the bits that we want to keep. And they're, they're true. There's no point denying that, and I wouldn't want to. Abolition's a remarkable thing, and I do think the abolitionists were remarkable people. But it's the end of a longer story. And unless you tell the whole story, then you're missing the point. And part of that story is that this country, in the end, had to buy its way out of slavery. And that's what we've forgotten. And just sort of one final question. What, what kind of new impression of the history of slavery would you like people to leave with, having watched your series? I think the big thing that I've learned is that our idea of who the slave owners were is sadly too comfortable an image. We've had this idea, because we've only known about the big slave owners, the super rich, that it, they were this other group, that they were these people in stately homes or in big houses in the Caribbean who were uniquely evil, and it was them and not us. When you look through those records of 46,000 British people who owned slaves, you realise that it's middle-class people, it's even lower-middle-class people, it's people that very easily could be the ancestors of any of us. So that idea that this, the people who benefited from this system isn't us that breaks down when you look at these records. That's not to say that people now are responsible, because of course we weren't. None of us alive today were alive at the time of slavery. But accepting that this terrible chapter in our national history did benefit an awful lot of people, an awful lot of families, and a lot of institutions and infrastructure and things that we still use today, railways, libraries, institutions, it is embedded within our history and trying to pretend that it's not doesn't really get us anywhere. It is part of our national history and there's no escape from that. That was David Oshoga. Britain's Forgotten Slave Owners continues next Wednesday, the 22nd of July, on BBC Two at 9pm. And don't worry if you missed the first episode because it is due to be repeated tonight, the 16th of July and will be available on the iPlayer. David is also one of the speakers at our History Weekend Festival, and you can purchase tickets for his talk, as I mentioned earlier, at historyweekend.com. As I also mentioned before, David's article on British slave owners was published in the May edition of BBC History magazine, which is still available as a print and digital back issue. Meanwhile, our August edition has just gone on sale, In this month's issue, there are articles on Hiroshima, the murder of Thomas Beckett, Tudor jousting and many other topics. Plus, you could also read more of the interview from Matt and Yanina Ramirez that you heard earlier on. And as with last month's issue, we're also providing an audio version of the August edition, which is included in the iPad and iPhone versions and can be downloaded for free from the website historyextra.com forward slash August audio. And to whet your appetite, here is one of the articles from this month's issue. How Jousting Made a Man of Henry VIII is written by Emma Levitt and spoken by Sally Bailey. How Jousting Made a Man of Henry VIII Emma Levitt reveals how, denied the opportunity to prove his worth on the battlefield, Henry VIII chose to display his masculinity in the tilt yard, bedecked in shining armour and with lance in hand. The king hath promised never to joust again, except it be with as good a man as himself, so stated an angry Henry VIII on the 20th of May 1516, following a tournament held in honour of his sister Margaret, Queen of Scots.
Jousting was the king's favourite sport, but the day had proved disastrous. As always, Henry was captain of the challengers, the team comprising the jousting elite of the Tudor court, Sir Nicholas Carew, Henry Borcher, Earl of Essex, and Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. The opposing team, the answerers, consisted of a dozen other jousting enthusiasts from court. They waited in the lists, the barriers that defined the edge of the tournament ground, to answer the challenges given by Henry and his three dashing knights. Henry was a highly skilled jouster, but what should have been a well-fought and exciting series of duels turned into a succession of bad runs and complete misses, making for a disappointing display. The king, the ultimate showman, was not impressed by the performances of certain knights in the answerers. Henry blamed them for limiting his final score, arguing that they failed to keep their horses close enough to the barrier for him to make contact and score points. The king made it clear that from then on it was essential he should compete only against skilled jousters. That way, if he won, the victory would confirm that he was the best jouster and, by extension, the best man at court. But Henry hated winning too easily. Each challenge was to be a hard-won battle. It was vital to his manly reputation that competitors did not let him triumph simply because he was king. To Henry VIII, the joust was more than just a sport. It was a vital part of his kingship, and he modelled this kingship on a particular version of chivalrous masculinity inspired by the archetypal medieval knight bedecked in shining armour, charging down the tiltyard with lance ready to strike his opponent. For Henry, knighthood was not just an ideal, but an active ideology. To his mind, it was essential that 16th century men still demonstrated such proficiency in arms. He longed to showcase this prowess in battle, to be acknowledged as a warrior king like Henry V, and started making plans to go to war with France after his accession to the throne in 1509. But his ambition to have his own Agincourt was not to be realised. So, for most of his reign, the tournament was not just a training ground for warfare, but also the means by which Henry and his nobles could showcase their warrior skills and chivalrous accomplishments. Despite improvements, jousting remained a dangerous sport, which is why kings usually refrained from participating. Yet for Henry and men such as Charles Brandon, it provided the perfect platform for shows of prowess and manliness in front of a great audience. Keeping score. For all their testosterone fueled swagger, the jousters' conduct was governed by a concise and coherent set of rules that informed a sophisticated scoring system. A king of arms marked each contestant's score in strokes on a scoring tablet known as a check. The scoreboard sported three horizontal lines showing the number of courses run. Attaints, Hits were noted on the top line, often differentiated as blows to the body or head. The middle line tallied the number of lances broken, and the bottom line recorded faults. When Henry VIII was searching for a man as good as himself, he needed to look no further than Charles Brandon. The product of a modest gentry background, Brandon attained the highest social status, becoming Duke of Suffolk in 1514 and marrying Henry VIII's sister Mary Tudor in 1515, an almost unprecedented ascent up the social ladder. When I studied the score checks for Henry VIII's reign in detail, the reason for Brandon's meteoric rise soon became obvious, his brilliance as a jouster. Brandon was the perfect companion for Henry, whom he resembled in both looks and build, and regularly jousted alongside the king in a team of two challengers against all the answerers. In the 1516 tournament, Brandon was on Henry's side, so would not have competed against the king. The check reveals that, unlike Henry, Brandon was on top form, losing not a single duel and achieving the highest overall score of all four challengers. On the second day of the tournament, Brandon broke 17 lances compared with Henry's 12. So Henry decided that Brandon would henceforth joust directly against him, leading the answerers. In this way, at least one of Henry's duels promised to be a valiant martial display. When the two were matched against each other, one observer compared their fight to that between Hector and Achilles. 
This new arrangement created a win-win situation for the king. Not only would Brandon joust against all Henry's challenges and beat them, he would then do his duty to the crown and let the king beat him. In this way, Henry would effectively triumph, but it was Brandon who would do all the hard work. The Czechs help explain how a non-noble man not born for high office could achieve high status. Charles Brandon proved time and again to Henry that he was indeed a man as good as himself. Additional material. Pageantry with a punch. How the Tudor joust worked. Jousting dominated the cultural environment of court during the first half of Henry VIII's reign. Like modern sports events, tournaments attracted competitors and spectators from afar. The joust was fought between two knights riding from opposite ends of the lists to encounter each other with lances. The challengers was a small team of knights who would challenge all competitors. The opposing team, known as the answerers, comprised knights who answered the challenge. The challengers often displayed their shields on a tree known as the Tree of Chivalry, or Tree of Honour. Each answerer would respond, indicating the knight against whom he wished to compete, by hitting the shield of his chosen challenger. By the reign of Henry VIII, the joust had become a more formalised competition. A number of rules were introduced, as well as score checks, prizes were awarded by the Queen, and her ladies might add a gold crown, a gold clasp, a diamond ring, or even a falcon. Checks showed the scores of the competing knights. Points were awarded for unhorsing a knight, breaking two spears tip to tip, striking an opponent's helmet and breaking the most spears. Yet there was a lot more to the joust than fighting. By the time of Henry VIII's reign, it had become a lavish spectacle, with knights entering the lists in fanciful disguises and pageant cars before performing heroic speeches. About the writer. Emma Levitt is a PhD student at the University of Huddersfield, working on court culture in the reigns of Edward IV and Henry VIII. That was How Jousting Made a Man of Henry VIII, written by Emma Levitt and voiced by Sally Bailey. You can listen to more articles from this month's issue at historyextra.com forward slash August Audio or via the iPhone or iPad editions. And just before we go, here's a reminder that we've recently launched a new app. It's called History Extra Weekly and is your indispensable guide to the week in history, including some of the best content from the History Extra website. It's free to download and is currently available on the iPad and iPhone. Search for History Extra in the App Store to give it a try. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about witch trials and some Renaissance heroines. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.